I'd like to begin this podcast by telling a story. In the Third Age, in the year 3018, which is the year 1418 by Shire Reckoning, Gandalf the Grey, the wise wizard of Tolkien's Middle-earth, rode to Orthanc, seeking the aid of Saruman the White, the head of his order. But Saruman is not the wizard that he was. At the Council of Rivendell, Gandalf relates, I rode to the foot of Orthanc and came to the stair of Saruman, and there he met me and led me up to his high chamber. He wore a ring on his finger. So you have come, Gandalf, he said to me gravely, but in his eyes there seemed to be a white light, as if a cold laughter was in his heart. Yes, I have come, I said. I have come for your aid, Saruman the White. And that title seemed to anger him. Have you indeed, Gandalf the Grey? He scoffed. For aid? It has seldom been heard of that Gandalf the Grey sought for aid, one so cunning and so wise, wandering about the lands and concerning himself in every business, whether it belongs to him or not. I looked at him and wondered. But if I am not deceived, said I, things are now moving which will require the union of all our strength. That may be so, he said, but the thought is late in coming to you. How long, I wonder, have you concealed from me, the head of the council, a matter of greatest import? What brings you now from your lurking place in the Shire? The Nine have come forth again, I answered. They have crossed the river, so Radagast said to me. Radagast the Brown, laughed Saruman, and he no longer concealed his scorn. Radagast the Bird-Tamer, Radagast the Simple, Radagast the Fool. Yet he had just the wit to play the part that I set him, for you have come, and that was all the purpose of my message. And here you will stay, Gandalf the Grey, and rest from journeys. For I am Saruman the Wise, Saruman Ringmaker, Saruman of the Many Colours. I looked then and saw that his robes, which had seemed white, were not so, but were woven of all colours, and if he moved they shimmered and changed hue, so that the eye was bewildered. I liked white better, I said. White, he sneered. It serves as a beginning. White cloth may be dyed, the white page can be overwritten, and the white light can be broken. In which case it is no longer white, said I, and he that breaks a thing to find out what it is has left the path of wisdom. You need not speak to me as one of the fools that you take for friends, said he. I have not brought you hither to be instructed by you, but to give you a choice. And that is also what I would like to do in this podcast. Only the choice that I have to offer you is not between serving Sauron or kissing Saruman's ring, you'll be glad to hear. At least I have another choice that I should like to consider. I want to talk to you about reality for a few moments, because it's rather important, and to discuss two questions in particular, because they happen to interest me. What are the basic building blocks of the natural world? Or what are the fundamental things that our best physics is telling us about? That's my first question, and it pertains to our philosophy of nature. And then, where do we fit into this picture? Or how does this picture of nature ground human agency and dignity and reflect back at us the glory of God? That's my second question, and it concerns our philosophy of mind and of religion. For it seems to me that the choices that have been offered to us by modern philosophy in tackling my first question have been unduly restrictive. According to Saramanic philosophers, who have minds of metal and wheels, what's fundamental in nature is what's left after everything else has been broken in the quest to uncover the exceptionalist laws of nature that supposedly govern these basic constituents. There are two ways of performing this piece of reductive wizardry. 
On the one hand, for Saramanics of the atomistic school, wired into the clockwork machinery of Newtonian mechanics, the macroscopic world of ordinary experience is reducible to a collection of microscopic constituents, which knock against one another like treacherous orcs lashed together by physical forces. These are the only fundamental things that we are permitted to posit in nature, however far removed they may be from ordinary experience. In such a world, the causal powers of any macroscopic thing, whether an illustrious scientist or a pet Pekingese, disintegrate into the behavior of their microscopic constituents. Once you've got atoms in the void, you've got everything else. On the other hand, for Saramanics of the monistic school, entangled in the spooky wave function of quantum mechanics, fundamental being is transferred from the world of ordinary experience in exactly the opposite direction. Only one thing can be the real thing, according to the monist, and this cosmic entity suffers no rivals, subduing to itself, like the Morgul king, the individuality of other things to mere shadowy appearances. In such a world, the causal powers of macroscopic entities, like ourselves, are absorbed into a cosmic substance. Once you've got the one substance, you've got everything else. What shall we say, then, in answer to my second question? How do human beings fit within the world after Saruman's spell of reduction has had its way with our concept of nature? According to Cartesians, we must look within ourselves for something extra to add to the physical world which escapes physical analysis, an immaterial self that is only extrinsically related to the physical body it somehow controls, or an immaterial aspect which somehow emerges out of a physical substrate when it is suitably configured. Such a world is a dichotomy of matter and soul, described by a combination of physics and introspection. Yet what are the connections that enable the immaterial self to control the physical body without breaking any of the supposedly exceptionless laws of nature? And how do these extrinsic relations secure the intrinsic worth of an embodied person? It is difficult for a puppeteer to manipulate a mannequin when all the strings have been cut. Perhaps even harder to make having a puppet for a body seem anything other than ridiculous. According to Kantians, however, we should call a halt to this unholy reductionism by acknowledging the dependence of everything in nature upon how we happen to carve up reality. The transcendental self which imposes the order we encounter in experience is not itself part of that order. Such a world has been described as one in which reference slides freely across the surface of numinal waters. Yet where can we find witness to God within a natural order that is carved solely by the self? Like the mirror of Erised in Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone, there are no truths to be found in this looking-glass, but only the reflections of our innermost thoughts and desires. Small wonder, perhaps, that many philosophers in the thrall of Orthanc come at last to the dark tower of Baradur, under the dominion of Sauron, the destroyer of nature. Whether they take the orc road from the Black Gate with Democritus, or pass across the Vale of Minus Mogul with Spinoza. In the end, it doesn't matter whether fundamental reality drains to the bottom, as microphysicalists insist, or diffuses to the top, as quantum monists maintain. Those seduced by the promise of exceptionless laws that dominate nature find themselves lost in a world which lacks any secure footholds for human agency and dignity, or in a looking-glass land which bears no witness to the glory of God. But there is a third way, I believe, to face off the threat of Sauron, if we can resist the seduction of Saruman. A new power is rising, but it is no engine of orcish reductionism. 
This wisdom is found in the metaphysics of Aquinas, which Gandalf echoes when he warns us of the folly of breaking things to find out what they are. It teaches us that it is one thing to know what something is, its form, but another thing to know what it is made of, its matter. The new power is the turn to practices in the philosophy of science, which rebukes our pretensions of total mastery of nature by breaking everything down into bits. It teaches us to proportion our claims about how things behave to what we can reasonably hope to know from our experiments. Suppose that science isn't about gaining universal control. Suppose there are no bits into which you can break everything that obey universal laws of nature. Philosophers have got used to talking as if we knew that everything continuously evolves according to one set of laws, and as though they beheld the world suspended forever in Saruman's Palantir. Yet finite beings, such as ourselves, never see the whole picture, and embodied beings, such as ourselves, only ever adventure over small, localized regions. There is a better account available of what we actually know in contemporary philosophy of science, and it is described in terms of the causal powers of entities that scientists detect in their experiments, which manifest law-like behaviours under certain conditions. This gappy description of scientific knowledge would be familiar to those who have contemplated the dappled world of Nancy Cartwright, which is not governed by one set of exceptionless laws, but where different laws reign over localised patches. Where there are exceptionless laws, they are not causal laws, but something more abstract. Yet does this gappiness have the right shape to accommodate the substantial forms that we find in the metaphysics of Aristotle and Aquinas? Where might forms get a grip on contemporary physics? Perhaps it would help to take a look at one possible example. It will be necessary to get technical for a moment. When thermodynamic systems undergo what is known as a phase transition, certain classical properties of these systems undergo change, typically discontinuous change, due to some change in their external conditions. An iron bar that is at thermal equilibrium above a critical temperature exhibits a paramagnetic phase in which it experiences no net magnetization. Below this critical temperature, however, it exhibits a ferromagnetic phase in which it experiences spontaneous magnetization. Significantly, at the critical temperature, both the ferromagnetic and paramagnetic phases are real possibilities for this system. How can such systems be described using quantum mechanics? In the thermodynamic limit, as it is called, the parameter describing the number of particles of a system is taken to infinity whilst its density is kept constant. This procedure furnishes a model in which thermodynamic quantities, such as pressure and energy, can be represented as closed functions of thermodynamic variables, such as temperature and density, by treating the matter of the system as a continuum. Infinite quantum systems, generated in the thermodynamic limit, can be described in terms of what's called a C-star algebra, which supports a continuum of concrete Hilbert space representations. This approach makes available an operator topology which defines the convergence of infinite sequences of quantum operators by using the inner product of the Hilbert space. The generation of such topologies permits the definition of different classical operators as limiting cases that support classical observables such as the magnetization of a ferromagnet. There is a property called unitary equivalence in quantum mechanics, which is widely considered the standard of physical equivalence. If two concrete representations are unitarily equivalent, there is a unitary operator that transforms one representation into the other, such that both representations determine the same expectation values for the various observables which they define. 
Representations which are mutually transformable in this way are empirically indiscernible. However, the additional mathematical structure that is generated in the thermodynamic limit, for the sake of representing properties of thermodynamic systems, divides finite and infinite quantum systems in a remarkable way. We know that finite systems admit one concrete irreducible Hilbert space representation, thanks to the Stone von Neumann theorem. This theorem establishes that any pairs of representations will be unitarily equivalent to the irreducible Schrödinger representation. Infinite systems, however, admit infinitely many concrete Hilbert space representations, which fall outside of the scope of the Stone von Neumann theorem. In this case, for any pair of distinct representations, there is no unitary operator that will transform a vector defined in one Hilbert space into a vector defined in the other space. In other words, we cannot get from a microphysical state described in one representation to a microphysical state described in another by means of a continuous series of changes connected by the unitary laws of quantum mechanics. The microphysics must instead be transformed. Nonetheless, we have good reason to think that unitarily inequivalent representations of quantum systems are necessary for empirically adequate descriptions of thermodynamic behaviours. As philosopher of physics Laura Ritchie points out, the statistical physics of finite systems, which admit a unique representation, identifies their equilibrium states with the unique Gibbs states, which implies that the phase available to a system at some temperature t is unique for all t. Yet this is contrary to what is observed in experiments. In order to offer an empirically adequate account of phenomena like phase transitions, which involve different phases of thermodynamic systems, such as the paramagnetic and ferromagnetic phases of an iron bar, we require the additional structure introduced by infinite models that admit infinitely many representations. We require this richer variety of representations in order to define all the states and observables of the physical systems that scientists measure in practice. According to Ritchie, it is only in the thermodynamic limit that one can introduce a notion of equilibrium that allows what the Gibbs notion of equilibrium for finite systems disallows, the multiplicity of equilibrium states at a finite temperature implicated in phase structure. You see, philosophers who have pitched camp downstream of Orthanc have exaggerated the unity of physics, overlooking the way in which physics is transformed at different scales. In so doing, ironically, they have imperiled our knowledge of nature. On the one hand, a realist attitude toward quantum physics is typically commended by philosophers because of its many explanatory virtues. There are so many natural phenomena to which quantum mechanical models have been successfully applied. On the other hand, there turns out to be no single semantic interpretation of quantum physics in terms of a single set of simple constituents which can capture all of its explanatory virtues. Aquinas's doctrine of hylomorphism, which distinguishes what something is from what it is made of, has the resources to reconcile the unity of nature and the disunity of physics without sacrificing metaphysical realism. It can do so by explaining how the matter that gives physicality to the various entities that scientists study can be transformed to take on new natures with different causal powers. In recent work, the metaphysician Robert Kuhns has suggested that the basic entities identified by quantum physics are thermal substances, which are both quantal and classical properties. And in recent work, I have suggested how this fundamental ontology might be combined with a recent contextual interpretation of quantum mechanics proposed by George Ellis, in which thermal substances determine the boundary conditions within which their quantal properties evolve through the exercise of their causal powers.
I began this discussion by asking two questions. What are the fundamental building blocks of nature that our best sciences are telling us about? And how do we fit into this picture of nature in such a way that we can have agency and dignity and perceive the glory of God? In answer to my first question, Aquinas teaches that the building blocks of nature are substances composed of both matter and form. There are different kinds of substances in the world which have different causal powers, and it is the business of the different sciences to investigate them and determine their various natural kinds. In answer to my second question, human beings are substances too, whose agency is manifest in the exercise of their causal powers, such as when they perform rationally controlled experiments in scientific laboratories, and their intrinsic value and dignity is guaranteed by an irreducible form, which determines the causal powers that correspond to having a rational human nature. And this objective and intelligible order of contingent beings manifests the glory of God, in whose necessary being all of these different substances in nature are ultimately grounded. If we would lead people away from the darkness of Baradur that breathes death upon human nature, I think we would do well to heed the voice of Gandalf, who echoes the wisdom of Aquinas. It is in rediscovering this wisdom that we find the road back to the Shire. There is much more to be said here, of course, and much more philosophical work that is still to be done. But if you would like to learn more about how hylomorphic ideas are beginning to be applied once again in the philosophy of physics and in the philosophy of the life sciences, you might begin by taking a look at a book called Neo-Aristotelian Perspectives on Contemporary Science, co-edited by myself, Robert Kuhns, and Nicholas Tay. Incidentally, Routledge have now made this volume available for a free seven-day trial. For more details, you can visit the Twitter feed of the Faculty of Divinity at Cambridge. And with that, my dear hobbits, I wish you well during these dark and uncertain times, and the opportunity for much reading and reflection. May the grace of the Valar protect you.